0: listening to the Screaming Pods Network.
1: Welcome. We must search for what is truth. You
0: doubt me. Seek proof what is truth and what is God. The first duty is to the truth, whether it's scientific truth or historical truth or personal truth. Then here is the proof you seek. You don't really want an answer to that question. Welcome to the Armchair Philosopher Podcast. My name is Sean DeRager, and this is episode one of season five. I'm very happy to be back after an extended hiatus, and I'm very excited with what this year has in store for the podcast. We're now on the Screaming Pods network, and we're one of the few religion slash spirituality podcasts alongside Azer Uncaged, very good company please feel free to browse all the other shows over at ScreamingPods.com. If you have a paradigm that doesn't allow you to ask questions, there's something wrong with the paradigm. And inside the traditional paradigm of Dante's Hell Inferno, you're not allowed to ask all kinds of questions. It's not a problem to ask questions, but sometimes when certain questions are asked, it's by someone who's a coward and doesn't have the conviction to declare their answer. The notion that there
1: really isn't hell is simply a wussy effort to make God a nice guy. Can anyone really believe that Hitler's had a second chance?
0: (laughs) I don't think so. So ultimately the panoply of scripture is pointing to one thing, and that is either Reconciliation with God, or separation from God? Just take a step back a little bit and hear how that sounds. You better accept Jesus Christ or you're gonna burn forever in hell. Oh, God loves you. (laughs) You often find folks whose map is the territory. If you disagree with them, you're not disagreeing with them, you're disagreeing with God. I use the language of national and state borders or boundaries. I can work with anybody in the state borders, but I can't partner with anyone who's crossed a national border. i got to tell you, that's not a good way to be. If someone's got a position or argument and you think it's wrong, then why do you fear looking at it? Truth shouldn't have anything to fear.
1: It's rather amazing to me that more people aren't saying, this can't be right.
0: Today, I'll be speaking with Kevin Miller, director of the 2012 documentary, Hellbound. This interview was recorded in August of 2017 when we were anticipating a class he'd been preparing called Mimetic Theory and Monsters. I received word that the class had been postponed until January, so I delayed putting out the episode. But once January arrived, I discovered that the School of Peace Theology had folded. And the class was, unfortunately, no more. Even though this extremely interesting class isn't a reality anymore, it's still a very interesting concept and a very compelling discussion. At the end of the episode today, you'll hear a short follow-up interview I did with Kevin this week about his new book, Hell Raised, which is in stores now. Kevin, thank you for joining me on the podcast today.
1: That's good to be here, Sean.
0: So first of all, I wanted to dive in just really quick about Hellbound that came out a little bit after, you know, Rob Bell and his book Love Wins. And then there was all this talk all of a sudden stirred up about does hell really exist? And uh, this this documentary came out and I'm, I'm a huge fan of the documentary and I've, I've seen it a couple of times. And I, sh- I think I just showed my wife it the other day because we got on the subject of all of this. But um, what was the catalyst for you to to start up that documentary? Was it specifically the Rob Bell stuff?
1: Well, Rob Bell was actually a bit of a coincidence. Um, so I had had the idea for the film. It came out in two thousand twelve. Uh, I started making it in two thousand eleven, but I had the idea back in two thousand eight, and I kind of sat on it because I was working on a number of other different film projects. Uh, but the real impetus for it was uh, a book called "Her Gates Will Never Be Shut" by a friend of mine named Brad Jursak, who. He did something pretty simple in the book is he just looked at the interpretive history of hell uh, Mm -hmm. uh, within the Bible and also within the theology of the church. And what he came away with was uh, this feeling that people have is that while there's only really one way to look at hell and it's a place of eternal torment. And if you, uh, you know, in the words of uh, evangelical Christianity, if you don't accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that's basically where you're going to end up. Uh, And what he uh, shows in the book is that, you know, going back to the earliest days of the church is that just hasn't been the case um, in terms of how people conceive of hell, that there's actually been any number of different ways of looking at this uh, theology. So I I got pretty excited because I was somebody who uh, became an evangelical when I was about nine years old. And I have this really vivid memory. Um, of standing on my driveway, we lived on a farm in Saskatchewan, in Canada, and I remember looking at my uh, standing on the driveway and looking at my family working out in the garden one evening and thinking to myself, if they don't come to believe what I believe, they're all going to go to hell when they die. Mm. And let me tell you, that's a pretty heavy on a nine-year-old kid. So I think it's something I've been, you know, trying to reconcile. Uh, My whole life um, in terms of, of, well, how could this how could such a horrible thing actually exist? So I got really excited reading Brad's book and I I thought, you know, I want to explore this through documentary film because uh, way more people watch movies than read books. Um, and so as I started to put the wheels on this thing, um, suddenly I was actually visiting with Brian Zond, who's a well-known pastor and writer, um, and his wife and his wife said to me, Oh, uh, did you hear about Rob Bell? And I said, no. And, uh, she said, you should go home and watch the trailer for his new book. It's causing quite the stir. So I actually went home terrified because uh i'm finally getting the wheels on this film and i thought oh no rob's going to scoop me and of course he's got a huge uh profile and following and he's going to do his own documentary on hell well it it actually was a real blessing in disguise because what he did was his book love wins was so polarizing that it brought out really all the most uh, articulate voices on the different sides of the debate so it really helped me uh, determine who I was going to speak to. I mean, it didn't totally set the agenda for the film, but it, it did help me really. Uh, the timing was great to be able to capture this conversation as it was happening with specifically within evangelical Christianity. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's a fascinating subject. And I, I remember all that stir when that was happening I, and, 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 you know, just being kind of, I, I was kind of excited to see this kind of dialogue going on with many, many different people of different kind of levels of Christianity and just the dialogue itself was fascinating.
1: Well, it really is. And, you know, it's uh, uh, resurging a little bit again. I know Bernie Sanders right now is uh, causing a little bit of an uproar saying, uh, you know, really almost using someone's belief in hell as a sort of a religious test to say, look, if you believe that people who don't share your faith are going to be in some sort of an uh, be excluded somehow from paradise or punished even uh you know he doesn't think that is that that really in a sense is almost a disqualifying belief um but i think i'm actually in the process right now of editing a book of essays um the book is going to be called hell raised question mark and it's r a z e d um and it's looking back 5 years cuz it's going to be 5 years this september since hellbound came out and i uh, solicited uh Essays from a number of people who are in the film and also people who I met along the way of of uh, releasing and promoting the film, just looking at hell five years later. Where's that conversation at? Because uh, back in 2011, when I was shooting the film, Rob Bell put it on the cover of Time magazine. I, I don't see as many people talking about hell anymore um but I, yeah. you know it, it's a kind of a you know your universal archetype that's always lurking in
0: the background of our our minds or our conversations yeah i mean i'm i'm seeing reports you know that thousands i think the relevant magazine had something like you know thousands of people are leaving like the like southern baptist and more of those kind of hellfire and brimstone churches and kind of seeking uh community elsewhere so it's, it's, for me like right now with the conversation with you know, this administration and all that stuff that got stirred up through the election year, I, I'm I'm seeing this kind of shift away from conservativism or whatever, you know, you'd call it conservative, Christian, evangelical, in, into something a little more, uh, I don't know, easier to process or or something a little more, I guess, nice. But it's interesting. We're in, we're in a very interesting time, I think, with all this. So I, th- I think that I don't think well, the conversation is going to go away.
1: No. And, and, you know, it's something uh, uh, I I remember reading a a good comment from Rob Bell, who said that when a movement's dying, it tends to get loud and it Mm -hmm. tends to get angry. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's what we're seeing in somebody like Trump and the people who put him into office is that they recognize that. Their way of looking at the world is dying, and so it. Trump really becomes, you know, we're talking about monsters today, uh, <laughs> and I like to think of 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 monsters as a mirror, a distorted mm-hmm. mirror, and um, I think that he really fits the category of monster because. Uh, You know, what we tend to do when we uh, encounter a monster is is we point at the monster and we're afraid of the monster and and, uh, you know, we're worried it's going to come and get us. But what we really fear is deep down what the monster represents and what the monster almost always represents is. Um, the de- deepest, darkest part of ourselves. And the question is, are we willing to look into the monster's face? And do we just project something onto the monster? Or are we willing to look at it as a, as a true mirror? And that's why monsters are always ugly, right? Because they're representing a part of ourselves that we, we never really want to look at. But I think that, you know, people uh, who support Trump and, um, you know, even h- himself and his circle, they're really going against the they're they're on the wrong side of history at this point because mm-hmm. i think the direction history is going is is more the direction that would be typified by someone like peter singer Uh, Australian philosopher who talks about uh, our circle of concern. And so, you know, going back to animal liberation, he's really somebody who's propelled us to, to widen our circle of concern to not just people like the us, uh, not just even humans, but to everything, you know, and I think that circle of concern will just continue to spread. And so as it does, and as we have a more and more difficult time othering people or seeing people as the evil other, hell just becomes almost inconsequential or there's no need for it. So I think mm-hmm. that, you know, these types of things, people, uh, you know, when you question uh, the traditional hell and brimstone or fire and brimstone view of hell, people will say that while well, you're questioning the Bible, uh, you, you what you don't believe the Bible, bullets here right here in front of you and and what they fail to see is that actually what people who question the traditional view of hell are are really questioning is just an interpretive structure and many times what we do is we tend to as uh greg boyd put it to me the uh philosopher theologian greg boyd is we mistake the map for the territory so we mistake our view of something for the thing itself and i think that's really the case with a lot of really hardcore conservatives is i think they're starting to wake up uh, to the fact that um, their interpretive structure is no longer relevant, and uh, it it needs to change or die, and and for many many people, it's just dying, and
0: people are walking away. Your class, mimetic theory and monsters, uh, I've I've dabbled in trying to understand mimetic theory, but I haven't fully grasped it yet, and I'm uh, it's something that f- fascinates me. Um, so if, if you can. Explain briefly what uh, I guess as briefly as you can, (laughs) right? Like what mimetic theory is.
1: If I can explain it briefly, I will have done something (laughs) that its originator René Girard was never able to do. (laughs) Right. Uh, But uh, you know, I I, one of the best uh, moments of my life actually was I actually got to sit down and have uh, lunch with René a couple of years before he passed away. So. Um, anyway, mimetic theory. So the word mimesis is it really means imitation. So really, the the most fundamental thing to understand about mimetic theory is that humans. The most basic truth about human beings is that we are imitators. So you have children. You know that children learn through imitation. And so we tend to think that there's a one-to-one correlation between what we desire uh, and, and the object of our, or ourselves and the object of our desire. But really what, uh, Gerard teaches us is that all, uh, desires are processed through someone else. So for instance, uh, we all have hunger, but we all desire different types of food and that food, the type of food that we desire comes about through a model. So think about desire as a triangle. There's yourself, there's a model, and then there's an object of desire. And we all learn what to desire by looking at the models in our lives. It's a very similar process to what we'll see in advertising is you get a celebrity endorsement so that – um, our desire for a vehicle or our desire for some kind of product is mediated through another person. We see this person who has something that we want in terms of a state of being. And so we think if we get that object, we'll then have that state of being as well. And so this is what Gerard says is this is basically how human beings function, period. Um, You think another way to look at it is and and people might find this kind of uh, difficult to handle the idea that we just are always uh, imitating other people. But I put it this way, like, say you think about a musician um, in the first part of his or her career. Oftentimes they will directly imitate their idols. They'll learn their songs note for note. And uh, even when they go to write music, it will sound a lot like they're they're the people who inspired them in the latter part of their career. Uh, they will then change the way they imitate their idols and in that instead of imitating note for note, they actually imitate their idols desire to have a distinct voice. So the mere fact of trying to differentiate ourselves from others is an act of imitation at the, at the deepest level. So this is uh so imitation just to sum up, imitation is really how we function in the world, but imitation also creates problems. So Girard talks about internal and external um, mimesis. So you could say that if I think Brad Pitt's wife is beautiful and I desire his wife, there's no, and I don't know Brad Pitt. Well, then there's no chance of a conflict between me and Brad Pitt. Right. But, if, but if I desire the wife of my next door neighbor, we suddenly find ourselves in a mimetic conflict because – um, you know, his desire for her has suddenly made her desirable and there's only one of her and there's two of us. And so we naturally are brought into some kind of a conflict. So we have to find a way to solve that. And so Girard hits upon this idea that that humans get locked into these triangles of desire all the time. How do we and, and which should pit us in uh, a war of everyone against everyone? So how do we solve this? Well, the the mechanism that humans hit upon is the finding of a scapegoat so i i don't want to be in conflict with you you don't want to be in conflict with me because we both have too much to lose um if we allow our desire uh, this this mimetic uh, desire to to burst into a crisis or what gerard would call a scandal so what we end up doing to find peace is we hit upon some kind of a scapegoat that we can both unite against and point the finger at, and then we can find peace at the expense of that individual. So w- this is something that that we do as just in interpersonal relationships, but it's also something we do really on an international scale as well, is that in order to solve this um, this conflict we're in, where we both desire the same thing, but we we can't have it, we hit upon a scapegoat. And that person or that people group is sacrificed uh, for, you know, so that we can have peace. We see this kind of thing happen uh, over and over again throughout history. And then uh, so Girard would say this is actually the beginning of of civilization is the killing of the first scapegoat. And and what he points to is if you look at the founding Uh, mythology of many of pretty much any civilization, even going back to the Enuma Elish, which is the oldest creation story we know, which comes from Babylon. It involves death and dismemberment. And so uh, what ends up happening is gods end up fighting, one god wins, and then the loser is cut into pieces. One part becomes the sky, one becomes the earth and and all that sort of thing. And what what comes out of that chaos and conflict Mm -hmm. is order. And and peace and so, um, this really Gerard says that without scapegoats, civilization is not possible. He says that's why every civilization needs religion. And so, out of this original founding murder, then arises uh, a few different things. One is is taboos. So taboos will arise to try and stop the behavior that led to the crisis that that required a scapegoat. Uh, there's also ritual, which is a reenacting of the founding murder almost as a way of inoculating the community against violence. So if you, you may in a very primitive culture, you may literally sacrifice another person, you know, on an annual basis or some kind of a regular occasion, or eventually you move to animal sacrifice, but somehow there's this sense that sacrifice is necessary to, uh, prevent us from falling back into crisis again and then the other thing is myth and so Girard would define myth as uh, a way of telling the story of the founding murder but removing our violence and so Mm. we end up you know it's a story that points the finger at the scapegoat when ultimately the true story of the murder is that the scapegoat was an innocent victim and we are the victimizers Mm. but that's that's the truth about ourselves that we never want to face and so that's why we tend to mythologize and again all of this stuff Girard would look at this uh, in literature, he would look at this in mythology, but um, really for him, the real turning point in history is is the gospel and the Jewish scriptures and the story of Jesus. Because what what ends up happening is with myth, it's always told from the perspective of the victimizers, Mm -hmm. but with gospel— It's a story that's told from the perspective of the victim. And so we start to see a prefiguring of this in the Old Testament, say with the story of Joseph um, and his brothers. Joseph is the scapegoat that the brothers use to bring peace, but his story ends up getting turned inside out. So now he's shown to be innocent and they're the ones who are guilty. This really happens in an ultimate sense with Jesus. And so um, Gerard sees this as really pivotal in history that for the first time, The voice of the victim is being heard and that this scapegoating mechanism is being turned inside out. Um, And and we're having to come to terms with the fact that uh, maybe this way we're finding peace is not the best way. And so what's offered in the gospel is an inversion of the victimization process. So in scapegoating, people stand around the body of the victim and they all point the finger at the victim and say, there, we've just dealt with the cause of our problems. But with uh, a ritual like the Eucharist, instead, people will then uh, stand before uh, Christ on the cross and they will, instead of pointing the finger at him as the guilty party, they look at themselves and confess their guilt and to say that this is the price that, you know, we were willing to pay. We're the victimizers. Um, and that, in a sense, it's it's a way of saying never again. Never again will we will we uh, victimize. And so how do we organize community without victims? That's the real key question. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's where we get to another image that comes from the Bible, which is the body of Christ, which is something Paul talks about in the uh, letter to the first letter to the Corinthians. And so we find differentiation um, not at the price of another, but um, by recognizing again, this goes back to really Peter Singer in the circle of concern is recognizing that every person has a part to play and that if one part suffers, the whole part suffers. So nobody, no party of the body can be sacrificed without hurting the body. So, um, and, and so all these things Gerard sees are very apparent in, in mythology and, uh, ancient literature. But what happens these days is a lot of these processes get, um, secularized. So we'll see secular versions of, uh, these types of scapegoating mechanisms and and because people aren't willing to you know in a sense be that body that which is really a you know a utopian way of looking at things uh, people you know it's like the world often is just in this standoff with so many guns pointing at each other that nobody wants to be the first one to lower their weapon mm-hmm. and and so uh, scapegoating is alive and well, but it's not as uh, it's not done in a
0: religious fashion. it's just done more of it in a in a secularized way. We're going to get to how we're bringing mimetic theory and monsters together in a second. But, um, before I jump there, how, what drew you originally to, to monsters and horror films? You, you do, uh, you do teach screenwriting and and that as well, correct?
1: Yes. Uh, actually my first movie called after was a horror movie. Okay. Um, and, uh, I've always been interested in horror films. Um, ever since I was a kid, really, Uh, I was really into monster makeup special effects and that sort of thing really fascinated by that aspect of storytelling scary films it's been a lifelong fascination for me and it's you know there's all so many different types of horror films I'm not necessarily into uh, slasher films but I find them interesting as a phenomenon Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm kind of somebody who's maybe a cultural anthropologist at heart so I'm I'm uh Always trying to look beyond uh, different movements in film and that sort of thing and, and looking at patterns that emerge. And, and you know, I think for me wanting to teach on it, I have taught a lot on screenwriting over the last probably 15 years or so. Uh, but I was commissioned at one point to write a horror film, a teen horror film that unfortunately never got made. But uh, I spent a lot of time watching and breaking down the structure of uh, specifically 1980s horror films, so some of the you know great ones like Nightmare on Elm Street and that sort of thing, and just trying to look at what sort of patterns emerged. And it was really interesting because you see these movements moving through cinema, and monsters in particular, I think that they really are always manifesting our neuroses or what are, what are we ultimately afraid of. Uh, and I don't think there's a coincidence that certain monsters appear on the screen at certain times because mm-hmm. they are manifesting the things that we're becoming very antsy about. And so they manifest themselves in human form or some other type of a form. So we can actually face them directly instead of having them linger on
0: the, uh, the
1: outer reaches of
0: our minds. What are some, uh, can you, can you think of any certain monsters tied to certain events throughout, uh, you know the past few decades.
1: Well, I think you know. I mentioned 1980s horror movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that think about what's going on in the culture in the 1980s is really um, divorce is becoming a lot more accessible, um, and and uh, women are being emancipated financially, and so they no longer ha- are stuck. Stuck in really bad relationships. And so what you're seeing is what would be called the breakdown of the family in a sense Mm -hmm. where uh, things that were much more certain and concrete in decades past are becoming much more fluid. And so you see an intergenerational struggle happening. And so Nightmare on Elm Street is such a great example where uh, the the Freddy Krueger as a monster was created by a lynching, by a scapegoating of Mm Freddie. Um, the parents found out that he was abusing children. And so they formed a mob and they killed him and then they burned his remains, uh, in a furnace. And so now he comes back to haunt the kids in their dreams. And the thing is, is that whenever the kids in the film try to go to an adult to try and tell them what's going on, the adults are too busy, uh, in their marital conflicts to listen. Mm -hmm. And, um, you see that happening over and over again. And if you look at that type of uh, that problem, uh, it's it's happening all over the 1980s horror movies. One of my one of the best examples is uh, a movie I, I watched way too many times, uh, which is uh, The Lost Boys. Yes. And uh, there's a, a great scene where uh, Corey Haim and his buddies are trying to go to his mom to say, Mom, there's all these vampires and they're trying to kill us. And she's too busy falling in love with the head vampire. <laughs> and uh, to to listen, so he goes out to his buddies and says, "Guys, I guess we're on our own." Right. And I thought, I thought, wow, that's just such a great metaphor for all these kids who are having to bear the consequences of their their parents' marital difficulties in the '80s. You know, it just really felt like that's what's manifesting itself through the films. I think in a more recent example, if we look at The Walking Dead. Uh, the Walking Dead is such an interesting phenomenon because zombie movies have been around since this. Well, really, I mean, since the earliest days of film, but kind of as yeah. a cult, a cult thing, really, uh, going back to the 1960s. But they're always out there as kind of schlocky B stuff, and then we have this move into TV and become, for a while, the top-rated show on television. Um, and so, what is that all about? What's what's going on? And and I feel, you know there's two things about the walking dead that I think strike fear into people potentially one is the zombies themselves, uh, and the fear of being bitten and becoming one of them. And the other is the, uh, breakdown of society. So it's not just zombies. It's a, it's a total global apocalypse. So I think what we're still wrestling through ever since really the end of the cold war is, is the world is still so undifferentiated that, uh, mm-hmm it It's this I think it's a way of trying to grapple with apocalypse and what will happen if the order that exists falls, what will emerge and I think the Walking Dead has a very pessimistic view of what's being held back by um, you know society or by civilization. Um, I don't necessarily agree with the image in, you know, presented in that series of humankind. I think it's just too unrelentingly dark. But Mm -hmm. I think that that's some of the things we're wrestling with. But at the same time, I think what's happening, too, is, you know, when you find uh, a TV show like I believe it's called iZombie, where there's a zombie now helping the police solve crimes. (laughs) Um, you, you realize that we've reached the end of the curve that perhaps that whatever zombies were trying to manifest in sort of, in terms of a fear, once we start to domesticate that fear,
0: um, we've obviously moved on to something else. Right. And there's also the one with, uh, is it with Drew Barrymore where she's a zombie real estate agent?
1: <laughs> yes. Well, at, at the very least, it, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. Uh, the California.
0: Yeah. I, I can't remember the title off the top of my head. Yeah, I can't either. My my wife and I were watching it, and uh, I was like, I think it's just some funny, kind of like iZombie. And then uh, it got really some gross-out stuff, and my wife was like, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> she <laughs> tapped out, left. <laughs> yeah. Even with, like, with zombie movies, you see kind of the trajectory throughout the, the decades. I mean, Romero back in the 60s was very much a commentary on the society at the time with a strong black uh, lead character. Um, putting him as the the forefront of the film back in the '60s when there was a lot of you know civil rights issues going on at the time, and he's the the main character of, of that film, the hero. Um, and then even even in the, into the '70s, you're talking about uh, like society and and um, kind of influencing film. I remember the '70s; a lot of the movies were like ecological horror or more like like. There's a lot of you know the the bees and then like kingdom of the spiders and none of those like really ended well it was always like we caused this problem and this problem basically is going to kill us (laughs) and i feel like we're starting to see that a little bit more but the 80s specifically seemed yeah there was a, a lot of terror and stuff like that but it was it would get it got campy pretty quick as the as the 80s went on
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, there's also the landscape in terms of film has really changed since the eighties where filmmaking, there was so much more room for all different types of stories just because the des- distribution mechanisms were different. Now we're moving more and more toward, um, you know, big corporate tentpole storytelling. And so some of the stories that are emerging in the cinema in particular are just not, I mean, I, I don't think you can get as a clear reading on the culture as you could back in the 70s and the no, 80s.
0: You would have to go uh, more of the independent horror scene and kind of seeing what is coming out of there.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I would also say television as well. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that you're seeing more things manifest there. Um, but um, yeah, and I think that you know, no matter what, though, I think that the I would almost say that the way I teach screenwriting is really every movie's a horror movie in a mm-hmm. sense that um, what a movie does or a good story does is it it confronts the protagonist with his or her worst fear. And so that may manifest in the form of a romantic love story. Uh, It doesn't seem like a scary movie, but it ultimately elicits feelings of fear. And that's what causes a protagonist to go to extreme measures to somehow restore balance in the world. Uh, But what monsters or antagonists are always coming along to do is they're always trying to teach us something. And um, the question again is, are we willing to learn what it has to teach? Because really, we two things make a monster scary one is being a victim you know think about scapegoating none of us wants to be the scapegoat and that's really what a monster is doing is it's pointing the finger at us and saying it's time that we need to be sacrificed and so it's coming after us so that's scary on a really surface level but the deeper thing that makes it fearful is realizing that we're now being chased by the thing that we created we all think we're heroes in our own minds and what the monster is, is a victim. um, that's coming back to remind us that we are victimizers. And again, going back to the eighties, Freddy Krueger, Michael Myers, Jason, I mean, all these iconic monsters were all, all revealed to be victims. Um, even something like jaws, you could say, going back to the ecological idea, that jaws is a victim uh, of, of human commerce. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he represents or it represents nature, um, coming back to remind us, uh, of, of what happens if we push things too far. So the question is, are we going to listen? And you'll see this very often in a film, the monster trying to educate the protagonist. Think about the Joker in the dark night. Um, that's really why he shows up is in a yeah. sense he's he's this distorted mirror of batman and so many times he tries to teach batman um you know that basically the quest that he's embarked upon is self-defeating and even the joker himself claims to be a victim when he tries to tell the story a few different ways of how he gets his scars and he says gotham is a victim of the batman and so are we going to listen to this and and we tend to try and want to defeat antagonists because we don't want to confront the truth about ourselves And uh, and so, you know, I think that that's until, you know, really the movie or the story can only really turn into an arms race until the protagonist finally realizes that lesson. Because, again, in a film, the protagonist and the antagonist will think that they're differentiating themselves from each other, uh, but really. The stronger or the more they try to achieve their goal, the more they try and differentiate themselves from the other, the more alike they become because eventually they both reach the, reach the point where they're willing to kill or they're willing to die uh, for what they believe in. It's only really when you uh, stop and surrender and, uh, repent and actually, um, offer yourself as a sacrifice instead of trying to sacrifice someone else is the, the, the cycle of victimization actually stopped. And is there finally, uh, an opportunity for growth and change, because if all you try and do is just reapply the victimization mechanism only more frequently or stronger, um, you know, in a sense, what you start to do is you start to mirror the very monster, you're trying to vanquish. And as uh, Nietzsche said, you know, be careful if you go after monsters that you don't become one yourself. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's the danger we face all the time because you really get to the point where uh, the number of victims that are piling up to protect your way of life are beginning to outweigh the way of life that you're trying to protect. And I think that's, a, you know, a big anxiety that is lurking underneath, uh, you know, even in something like a zombie apocalypse, if you look at that as perhaps a metaphor for the war on terror, I think a a brilliant, uh, horror movie of the last few years is the purge. Um, because, because I think that really becomes, you know, asking that question is, is, um, we are profiting from victims. I think it's great that they told the story from, uh, the perspective of the guy who's the top salesman of home security systems (laughs) and, uh, ends up, you know, his son ends up letting someone of color into their home. As, as a way of protecting them and, and so it's really asking the question at what point is this society worth protecting is the purge is the price of the purge too high and uh, would it be better just to let this all collapse and see what emerges from the rubble hmm.
0: yeah that series that, that series is one that I keep hoping they really tap into the potential they've all been interesting but I'm waiting for them to really go for it <laughs> you know Well, I, it's a very could... interesting uh, series for sure
1: I, I kind of think the first one did do it for me. I felt yeah, it was just yeah. very Shakespearean in terms of yeah. just even it's, it's, uh, it's plot structure. I just, that's where I think sometimes you just need to walk away. You know, you did it, just walk away. Right. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, this is where, you know, one of the things is, uh, you know, again, as uh, somebody who works in film, you're always balancing, uh, artistic impulses with commercial constraints mm-hmm. or, perhaps technological constraints and, and uh, you know, there's just more and more and more pressure for movies to make money than ever before. Um, And so it's really distorting the whole form. whereas you don't see the same type of thing happening in novels um, or other art forms where there's just way less at stake in terms of how much it costs to create something. So personally right now, I'm actually working more in the world of uh, book publishing and that sort of thing, just because there's a lot more freedom to tell the stories that you want to tell um, because there's, there's so much less riding on it. You can be a lot, you can be a lot more
0: experimental. You've touched on this a little bit, but then, so this class, you know, you're bringing together the mimetic theory and monsters. Um, what urged you to start this class? Was it something you brought up or was it something else?
1: Yeah, it was something I pitched. I think, yeah. uh, ever since I discovered Girard, I, I really felt that mimetic theory, could help us understand monsters and really ultimately help us understand ourselves and our own fears and how to deal with them in a constructive manner. So uh, uh, what I've done is broken down the course into different types of monsters. So, Mm. uh, you know, there's scientific monsters, artificial intelligence gone amok, even something like Alien, uh, which is we encounter Alien in that series because of uh, commercial mining enterprise. Um, you know, uh, th- then you've got, uh, monsters that are infectious. So you've got vampires, you've got zombies, you've got werewolves. And, and what does that really mean? So each, each different class or type of monsters manifesting a different type of fear. And I think, you know, really mimetic theory is a great way to explore monsters and monsters are a great way to explore mimetic theory. Um, Girard talks about monsters and, and one of the things he points out about a lot of monsters is that they tend to be hybrids. So uh, something like a werewolf, a minotaur, uh, something that's partly human and partly something else. And, and uh, why does that happen? His theory is that monsters, when they start to take on a hybrid form or a distorted form, is it's an early indicator that uh, the order that was created out of scapegoating is beginning to break down. And so the lines um, between the sacred and the profane, the lines between animal and human, they are starting to become blurred and so I think that there's some interesting things to explore there. The other thing, too, you know, that I'm going to work into this is I, I really co-discovered or discovered two people at the same time um, when I was working on Hellbound. One was René Girard in Mimetic Theory. The other was Ernest Becker and his book, The Denial of Death. Ernest Becker is a really interesting figure um, who was uh, basically a disciple of Freud, but he parted company with Freud in a very significant way, and that is... That instead of uh, agreeing with Freud that the central things th- the central thing humans are always trying to repress is their ambivalence about sexuality, it's actually uh, their fear of death. And so this is the thing that we least want to face is the fact that ultimately all of us are food for worms. and so we we embark on what Becker calls immortality projects, which are ways of transcending death um either literally or uh, figuratively say through works of art that will live beyond our physical existence, or maybe even war is an immortality project. If we can establish the Reich, you know, that will last for a thousand years, it will transcend us, you know, so I, you would, he would very much look at what the Nazis were doing as an immortality project. Um, but what, what uh, Becker and, and a psychologist I really like, uh, Richard Beck s- points out is that really what society is, uh, to a large extent is is a massive death denial project and so w- there's very few places left in our world where we can encounter death it used to be that when somebody died you know people would wake the body in the living room mm-hmm. and uh then the body would be buried in the churchyard. So every time you go to church, you're walking past all these dead people. And you know the phrase, the stinking rich in the churches in England, the reason why they said that is because the rich people could afford to be buried at the front of the church. And of course, they would smell under the church floor. And so, uh, you know, death was all around us. But we have in, been involved in a systematic eradication of death, even if you drive by a graveyard these days. And it could be partly due to the cost of uh, of granite. But even the tombstones now, instead of being tall uh, you know, several feet high, they're flat to the ground and you might even not even know a grave is there. Uh, chicken fingers, right? Chickens don't have fingers, um, but we eat food now that in no way resembles the animal that it came from. And so monsters, I think, also are a death reminder, especially if a monster uh, assumes some kind of a hybrid form. Because again, being reminded that we're animals is, uh, is, is also reminding us that we will die like animals die. And so something like a werewolf is scary for that reason. But I think there can be a positive thing about horror, horror films in terms of they give us an opportunity to confront death. Cause I think we need to Mm. confront that. And I think that again, many monsters uh, think about the, the old uh, movie poltergeist Um, you find out that this new subdivision was built on top of a graveyard and what the dead are trying to do is to come back and say, you ignore us at your peril. You ignore your past at our per- at, at your peril. You ignore the fact that you will one day die at your peril because death has a way of putting uh, life in perspective. And, you know, it, it prompts self-examination in terms of uh, toward what are we directing our time and our energy and that sort of thing. So I think that being reminded of, of death is healthy. And I think that we have pushed the repression of death to an unhealthy extent and, Hence, uh, you know, I think our never-ending desire for horror films. I always tell young filmmakers, you know, really, there's no hope of getting your independent film in theaters anymore yeah. unless, unless it's a horror film. There's always room
0: for one more good one. <laughs> always. Always. Yeah. And I, with my other uh, podcast, uh, The Screamcast, we run into young filmmakers all the time. And and uh, yeah, there's, there's so many people writing scripts and all focused on horror. I, I'm surprised it was just just surprised at how many people i run into on a daily basis who is a you know budding filmmaker somebody always has a script <laughs> and and if you look at most filmmakers too they a lot of them jumped on the scene in in horror and then moved on from there um so yeah it's 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 just pretty fascinating that's definitely something that's always you know always on our minds when this course is done is this something that you're going to try to preserve so other people can Get a taste of this or, or is this something You would just repeat You know In, in like a live Classroom form
1: I think it depends on the popularity of the course. Yeah, it's something I would definitely repeat. It's something that I've wanted to uh, do some writing on. So perhaps I might turn it into some kind of a book. Uh, I think that would be quite interesting. I mean, it would actually make for a really interesting documentary film as well. Mm So yeah, I would look at possibly uh, doing that. And you know, one of the things too that's spurring me to really want to do this is just wanting to explore this subject myself. And this gives me license to do it in a way that uh, hopefully provides uh, some kind of a financial compensation. So it gives me the, the time, you know, that's needed to really delve deep into this sort of thing.
0: Well, some time has gone by, I've, I've been meaning to get this podcast episode out. Uh, my initial plan was fall of last year, and then I was going to try to do it around October, because the class that Kevin was talking about kept getting pushed back. But uh, that eventually class eventually got got canceled, and I have Kevin back with me <laughs> to kind of let me know uh, what's been going on. And, and Kevin, you have a book that's come out since called Hell Raised. The whole thing we talked about with the mimetic theory of monsters, do you want to take that and put that into something else? Is that something you're possibly going to combine into something in the future, or...
1: Well, yeah, it's interesting. So, what I was going to do with, uh, yeah, using uh, mimetic theory as a way to understand monsters, our fascination with them, and really the function that monsters perform, and even just the whole, you know, why do we uh, want to experience things like that, and what can we learn, you know? I, and so, my main argument being that monsters ultimately are a mirror, and monster—the word "monster" is a warning. And they're coming to uh, warn us of something that we don't necessarily want to know about ourselves. And uh, that's why they're often distorted and ugly and scary. Uh, but if we do confront that thing, we can um, perhaps be saved. Uh, and uh, other people can be saved re- as a result. So I think it's, it's a really interesting psychology uh, of monsters. And so I probably will work that into something I write in the future. I am actually in talks right now about a, a film, another documentary film. Um, that may, uh, it's not going to be about monsters in specific, but I think just working that topic into just even the way we look at, uh, something, uh, something like God and different views of God and, and that sort of thing. So yeah, definitely we'll find some purpose in the future.
0: Awesome. Yeah. It's, it's such a fascinating subject and, uh, it's it, the whole mimetic theory is something that I've been wanted to wrap my head around more. And, uh, the, your conversation with monsters putting in that terms really helped me kind of understand it a little further. So, um, hopefully that conversation will benefit other people who are curious about mimetic theory and, and things like that. And so, so I'm hoping our conversation was not in vain. I'm sure it was not. Um, but I want to talk about hell raised. And so you basically, it's been about what, five years since the Hellbound documentary came out.
1: Yeah, actually, well, now we're in 2018, so uh, it's been six years. So what I did, though, was, uh, yeah, 2017 was the fifth anniversary of the movie coming out, and so... What I wanted to do was take a look back. I think our context has shifted a lot since uh, I made the movie. So I was making the movie in 2011. It was released in 2012. So uh, 2011 was the 10 year anniversary of 9 11. And so that really seemed to be still very strongly on people's consciousness, uh, you know, even when the film came out and that sort of thing. But I really felt. We hit a new inflection point with the election of Donald Trump that the whole cultural conversation seemed to shift from a focus uh, even on something like ISIS or some kind of an evil out there to uh, really the focus shifted to something within. So if if, uh, Donald Trump now is able to assume power in America, what does that have to say about us, never mind the rest of the world? I'm a Canadian, but I still say us being, you know, we're definitely within the folds of America being up in Canada and uh, very much tied to uh, what goes on in the United States. But I think it – so I, I looked at something like the issue of hell. Well, how does that weigh into this conversation? And and so what I did was I approached people who were in the film and a number of people that I met through the making of the film and asked them to write an essay – um, answering the question is, how has the conversation, how has the conversation regarding hell shifted over the last five years for you personally? And how do you see it changing out there in the broader culture? Um, because I think hell was really a front burner issue for a lot of people back in 2011. You know, you see so many books came out that year on the topic, uh, a lot of discussion, a lot of controversy. But I think most people at this point have almost forgotten about the issue. And, uh, cause I think that there's, it, there's almost a, a, yeah, I guess, a, like I said, I think it's a time of just really, you know, maybe a time of more national introspection and we're less really even um, looking so far into the future, you know, trying to confront what happens after we die. It just seems like we're so focused on the here and now.
0: Yeah. What what were some of the biggest shifts that you saw from some of these essays? Was there any that kind of sparked um, – your interest as far as like, wow, that I didn't expect that. Was there any, any surprising?
1: Yeah. Well, I should mention some of the people I have in the book. Yeah. I've got uh, Brian Zond in there, Frank Schaefer, uh, Brad Jerzak, uh Michael Harden, Sharon Putt, who was actually Sharon Baker where we made the film, uh, Julie Forwerda. I have a number of different people in there. And uh, you know, the essays are really, they come at things from a, a really wide Variety. One that really stood out to me was the one by Frank Schaefer. He's uh, definitely a very outspoken individual in regards to his critique of evangelicalism and his critique of uh, the Republican Party. And so I think he was probably, uh, you know, one of the most definitely one of the most uh, polemic essays in the book uh, talking about Trump and and the shift in context. And, uh, you know, if I had come to interview him. Uh, about a documentary about hell today he would have had something quite different to say but you know one of his one of his uh main arguments is that uh people have ignored the religious right to their peril uh too many too many uh elitist um uh journalists and and people on the left really considered the movement beneath contempt and have done so for many decades and so uh, weren't fully aware maybe of what was brewing, um, behind the scenes until suddenly you get these really big seismic shifts in terms of who's in charge of, uh, the country now. So, yeah, so I found his essay, uh, uh quite good. Um, and, uh, I'm just quickly flipping through it here. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, it was interesting too. Like I had some people talk about the film, uh, Hellbound as well. Like I, I was uh, quite intrigued there was a short essay in the book by a guy named Randall Rouser who's a um, professor of theology from up in Canada here and and he taught me something about the film that uh, my own film that I didn't really I didn't realize in terms of how the film ends and uh, for those who haven't seen the film it 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 ends with uh, uh, an image of some people uh, creating these paper lanterns and then putting them out on the water um, on the Hudson River um, at the uh, the end of uh, the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And Randall talked about how I brilliantly uh, reconfigured the Lake of Fire uh, by making it a symbol of peace and reconciliation and hope instead of judgment. <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, that was brilliant, seeing as how that wasn't even what I was thinking when I did it. Uh, I was more trying to revisit the city of New York uh, in a hopeful vision. So, yeah, it's interesting once you um, get opinions from people on your work and just on the topic, just how how vastly different the perspectives are. And so it's it's a really, I think, So helpful to learn. There's other types of essays in the book where people, some people get really theological. Some people get, uh, they're very much into cultural um, critique. And then other people are telling first person stories of how this issue affected them. uh, Such as one guy who lost his job uh, as a youth pastor because of um, his change in his views. And so he tells, uh, I think, quite a gracious account of of, uh, what happened to him and how his life changed as a result. Well, and who
0: who is that specifically?
1: His name is Jackson Bear.
0: In my own experience, my views are always evolving constantly. But has your since you did the documentary, have you evolved?
1: <laughs> I hope so. Um <laughs> uh, I agree that, you know, if your views aren't changing, then you're not learning. And yeah. uh that I think if your views remain fixed on this, <sighs> that's I think that's kind of a damning critique of yourself. Um, So, yeah, my views have changed a lot. Like, definitely for me, the issue is not a front-burner issue for me at all anymore. And I think, you know, part of what I went through in making Hellbound and just in the subsequent reaction to it and just all – I mean, I did so much writing and and talking and discussing about this. is You know, it's it's a wholesale deconstruction of my entire worldview. So, yeah, I definitely just feel – It's uh, I recognize that for a lot of people, it still is very much an issue. But for me, uh, I guess I've kind of moved on to Mm. to looking at other things. And uh, but it was such a, you know, uh, it was a real coming of age experience, I think, for me making the film and, um, you know, coming to terms with some of these things that I've been wrestling with since I was young. So, yeah, so definitely my views have changed quite a bit.
0: Very nice. Um, well, Hell Raised has been out since uh, since last year. It's available on Amazon. It's available through your the website, correct? Um,
1: yeah, it's pretty much available uh, anywhere book, yeah. Anywhere books can be sold. Um, so, yeah, you can get it at hellboundthemovie.com. Uh, you can get it through my personal website, kevinmillerxi.com. And, yeah, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever you get books.
0: Fantastic. Is there anything else that you're uh, working on that, that you can talk about or
1: uh like I said I'm in some early talks on a, another documentary that um uh, will um I, I don't think it's fair to say it's a sequel to Hellbound but it's uh definitely picking up the ball um from Hellbound and and uh you know going back to the issue of really um what we believe about God basically sets the tone for everything else so Uh, you know, whether, and it doesn't mean, I don't even necessarily mean a God or a Christian God, but whatever our ultimate reality is, we'll tend to try and create a world that reflects that reality. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a really important issue. And I think that there's some really interesting um, shifts going on within the Christian community and also the broader culture in regard to this, Uh, some really hopeful things, even though it seems like we're in a really dark time and in, uh, in history in a lot of ways uh, because of uh, just uh, the increasing polarization and atomization of the culture but I, I think that it's uh, maybe the darkness before the dawn that, that I think that yeah. there's there's going to be some really good things happening so this film is is uh, going to look at that from a, you know a, I guess a, a broader cultural perspective in terms of how does that, how do our beliefs around these issues um, uh what role are they playing? And, you know, yeah. our, our beliefs about God, how are they shifting and how is that shift affecting the broader culture?
0: Yeah, it, it's a very interesting time to be, you know, to be in these circles because I it's it's been so, so hard for me to even because as I deconstructed everything and I started coming back around last year, like uh, like, you know, what, maybe I can embrace, you know, calling myself a Christian in a sense. And then <laughs> I kind of got burned down to the ground a little bit with. With the the, the the cultural conversation around, uh, you know, the Trump administration and, and all that stuff going on there. And it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride for me personally, trying to find out where, where I latch on, where I belong. And I feel like a lot of people, I mean, who are searching for the stuff are, are definitely having a, not necessarily a, a rough time, but very, uh, you know, uh, tumultuous is that is that the right word
1: um, <laughs> yeah well i think there's a lot, to lot of understand all this there's a lot of forces out there that have a lot to gain by keeping people divided because mm-hmm. as long as you keep people feeling like they are part of a persecuted minority of some kind there's there's something to be gained for people who can capitalize on anger who can capitalize on dissent and and disagreement so there's and and i think that the The internet uh, exacerbates that um, and it really has a catalyzing effect and so it's just it's becoming i think a lot of people are just recognizing how increasingly difficult it is to have a civil discussion because there's a lot of people who are trying to prevent that from happening because it's in their best interest to do so uh, to create dissent, to create debate, to create you know all kinds of problems. but I think that most people are reaching a saturation point and are reaching you know, just this level, profound level of dissatisfaction that, uh, with our ability to communicate. And so I I think we're probably reaching the tail end of a trend and that there'll be a counter movement that will emphasize more of what we have in common. Cause I think that no matter who you're talking about, whatever your most, your strongest disagreement is with them, you, uh, it's, I think Freud talked about the, uh, oh, the, uh, Something of small differences. I can't remember the name of the. Uh, anyway, he just talked about people who just have really minor differences between them tend to be become the most um, uncivil in terms of their disagreements. So I think that's partly because they're really working hard to differentiate themselves. But I think that we're gonna. I think that we're gonna see a counter move where people have. Uh, there's a, a, a stronger willingness to try and emphasize what emphasize what we have in common. And I think as we move back toward that being able to have more balanced, productive discussions about some really important issues is going to be easier. Uh, But I think it's a, you know, going to be more of a long-term shift than an overnight thing.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, we're all on this ride together. (laughs) That's for sure. Yeah. So um, Kevin, thank you so much for, for um, being available for me to kind of follow up with you on our last conversations last year and to, to talk a little more about Hell Raised. Um, like I guess, like I said, you can go to, uh, hellboundthemovie.com, find the book there. Are you on any other social media, Twitter, uh, anything like that?
1: Yeah. Twitter, uh, Facebook, there's a, a very active hellbound page, uh, page on Facebook. Um, yeah. So yeah, take a look around there too.
0: Fantastic. We'll get all that in the show notes and Kevin, thanks again for joining me today. All right. Thank you. Please follow me on Twitter at the AXPX to stay in the loop on upcoming shows and other extras that may come down the line. I was at a point last year where I really wasn't sure where the show would go. So uh, I canceled the Patreon that I've been talking about on the past shows. That is something I want to bring back. If there's interest, I'd really like to start recording the AXPX diaries again. So I'll have more information on the next podcast episode for all of you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I will talk to all of you next time. Bye-bye.